This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com galaxy and entering the promo code GALAXY. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 289 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Joe Quirk. He's the president of the Seasteading Institute and the author of the new book Seasteading, How Floating Nations Will Restore the Environment, Enrich the Poor, Cure the Sick, and Liberate Humanity from Politicians. And today's show is brought to you by Casper. If you need a new mattress, just head on over to casper.com slash galaxy and order today. The mattress industry is famous for forcing consumers to pay high markups, but Casper cuts out the cost of resellers and showrooms and passes that savings directly on to the consumer. Your Casper mattress will be shipped to you in a small box, and all you have to do is open up the box and watch as the mattress naturally expands to its full size. Casper mattresses are made of supportive memory foams for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, their breathable design helps keep you cool and comfortable all night. I've been sleeping on a Casper mattress for over a year, and let me tell you it's the perfect mattress for curling up with a book like Seasteading. In fact, it's so comfortable it'll make you feel like you're already seasteading, since you'll basically be floating away on a gently rolling sea of endless comfort. So, just head on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. You have 100 days to try out the mattress, and if you decide not to keep it, Casper will give you a full refund. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. Terms and conditions apply. So remember, the address is casper.com galaxy, and you should also use the promo code GALAXY, which will get you $50 off any mattress, and also let Casper know that you heard about them here. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Joe Quirk. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so first of all, just tell us a bit about your background and how you first heard of Seasteading. So I'm an author and a public speaker, and I've written novels, and I've written uh, humorous science books, and I've ghost-written memoirs. So I've always just been a storyteller, and it seems my role in life is to learn about abstruse, obscure things and say, my God, mainstream people should know about this. Um, and I did that with evolutionary psychology. I did it with a number of things, you know, just explain things like a guy in the bar. And I was completely captivated, uh, by seasteading when I met Patry Friedman at Burning Man and he described it to me. Uh, and because I'd just been on a cruise ship like six weeks before, I understood that humanity could be moving to the high seas, that it was technologically achievable. I didn't understand why anyone would start a nonprofit to make it happen. And then when I uh, went home, I noticed that the Seasteading logo was based on the Burning Man logo. Hmm. And that made me say, why? What does that even mean? Why would cities on the ocean be inspired by a city in the desert? Uh, and what was that guy's name? Patrick Freisman or something? <laughs> Seascaping? So I Googled and I stumbled on his blog uh, whereupon I uh, grokked the idea that transformed my life, um, which uh, we can go into some detail on, which is basically that if societies floated um, and if uh, societies developed on water instead of on land, and if societies, if cities could be disassemblable and reassemblable according to the choices of the residents, we'd have uh, variation by governments and selection by residents. Uh, and that kind of hit me like a shovel in the face, uh, the kind of the revelation of this would be variation and selection in the most important service in the world, which is governance. And I'm still waiting for someone to explain to me what's wrong with that idea. And so I started soliciting uh, Patry and the Seasteading Institute saying, you got to let me write a populist book about this. I, I can help in lots of ways. It can't just be a discussion among Silicon Valley bloggers, which is what it was at that time. You know, the way this is going to happen is it's in the brains of millions of brilliant people out there who haven't heard about it yet, and a thousand times more people need to hear about it. So luckily, they were also thinking about writing the book. 
So we agreed to write this book and we, we sold it to a very prestigious publisher, Simon and Schuster, who offered the Seasteading Institute a nice six figure advanced. And then immediately I panicked because I realized, how am I going to write a populist book about ideas, about abstractions? And it wasn't until I attended the 2012 Seasteading Conference and I met all the people I would later call aquapreneurs that I realized this is not about an idea. It's about people and all the people that are coming to this idea with their unique solution for how they can use the freedom and the power of the seas to solve all sorts of complex social problems. And that's when I realized you had to just let all these people tell their stories. So I feature a bunch of aquapreneurs in the book. And then I did a lot of talking to the media. I you know, was interviewed a bunch of times and people noticed that I was pretty good at that. So um, they asked me if I wanted to come serve as communications director at the Seasteading Institute. And I said, would I? <laughs> and I dubbed myself Sea Evangelist and took the first real job I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I really enjoyed the book. It's got so many interesting ideas in it. And since this is a podcast for science fiction fans, I thought we would just start out with one of the more science fictional things in the book, which is these illustrations of different floating cities of the future that might be built. And so the uh, the first one, it's this thing, it's called Artisanopolis. And it looks like it's a bunch of floating platforms in kind of a snowflake configuration. Could you just kind of talk us through what what this is for people who haven't read the book? Yeah, incredibly, that was uh, done by uh, volunteers who call themselves Roark 3D, um, and uh, it it equally as incredibly to me is it's based on our initial research uh, done by the um, aquatic engineers featured in the book, who at that time were called Delta Sync. It's the first people you meet in the book. Uh, so they, we actually the Seasteading Institute uh, paid them to do a feasibility study, uh, how much it would cost per square foot, what it would be made of. It's all based on their floating pavilion in Rotterdam. And then um, those animators took those ideas and uh, sticking very closely to the research, they envisioned Artisanopolis. Uh, and the only part of the technology you see there that doesn't exist yet is the, that hasn't been invented yet is the uh, floating breakwater. Um, the rest of it is all based on our specifications in our um, original uh, implementation plan. Right. So it looks like some of these are um, are sort of gardens or sort of hydroponic gardens and some are apartment complexes. Kind of what are the different uh, units that you would see in this uh, visualization here? Well, you would see lots of solar. Um, solar is 20% more efficient on the water than it is on land for all sorts of interesting reasons we can get into. Uh, you would see uh, hydroponics, uh, domed, uh, uh, domed uh, gardens where you can grow land-based uh, food, but you can also grow food under the water. Um, and we have plans for sort of underwater restaurants with aquarium walls, which are going to be in our first seastead in uh, French Polynesia. But uh, I think step B would be something like Artisanopolis. Uh, so you'd see homes, you'd see offices. It, they made it to look very much like a normal city, except it's floating, and you're moving it about, and it sort of looks like a floating Venice of the Pacific. Right, and so you said also that there would be structures underwater, and some of these other, one of these other visualizations, it has what's called a sea scraper, where it goes down... I don't know, hundreds of floors or something, kind of like a skyscraper except inverted and all under the water. Yes, and, and, and what's exciting is about seasteading is it requires you to flip so many assumptions you bring to what it takes to build a city. And one of the interesting things about um, sea scrapers as opposed, as opposed to skyscrapers is that you can make, like gravity is your friend, and the deeper you can go with the ballast beneath the water, the more stable your structure becomes in very high waves. So Sea Scraper is by uh, Malaysian architect uh, Sarli bin Sarkoum, um, who knew nothing about seasteading as far as I know until I contacted him, who conceived, uh, got a kind of an honorable mention in this skyscraper competition, describing how you could have a floating city that is mostly below the water and how you could engage all these sort of green technologies and blue technologies on the ocean. Um, 
And it's, uh, that's going to be the future of seasteads is a whole lot of a ballast, uh, making it stable below the water and then pilings lifting your city, say a hundred feet above the waves. Yeah. And then one of these things that has sort of a sandy beach on it as well. Yes. Tyler Kreshover, uh, he made a huge vision of cities on the water. Um, and we were only able to use two of his images in the book. And, you know, once engineers start thinking about this, it's like, it's like, I, I call it stead porn. It's <laughs> like they just keep imagining all the ways you could do this. And one of the most interesting insights is the most effective wave break in the world is a beach. And that it's comparatively easy to make a buoyant sort of hammock around your, uh, city that basically holds sand. Um, and waves could be significantly reduced when they kind of hit the sand that you're sort of, that's sort of suspended in a floating hammock around your city. Um, so he featured that in his structure. Um, and he's featured a lot of, uh, underwater structures and how that would work and how hydroponics would work and all that stuff. A lot of people have brought their visions to this. Yeah, no, it's it's just really, really interesting looking. And then the last one I want to mention here, it's this city that looks kind of like a manta ray. Yes. Um, you know, you think you've got a new idea and then you find out visionaries all over the world are already working on this. So that's um, uh, a famous uh, French architect. Uh, you might call him an aquatect um, <laughs> who's very respected in France who uh, – wants to build civilization on the water. And one of the things he designed was the city of Marins. Um, and it's basically in the shape of a manta ray. So a lot of um, our seasteaders engage biomimicry, where it's sort of like emulating nature's designs and then seeing what you can learn from that. So what's the best way to create a stable structure uh, in waves that you suppose your city is sort of movable, but you also want it to be stable in waves. And if you don't want it to have this tremendous ballast that would pretty much keep it in one place, then you would basically design your city in the shape of a manta ray. Um, and it's quite beautiful. Uh, I, I recommend people check out, but he's designed lots of things uh, for living on the water. Um, check it out in the book. Yeah, yeah, no. So, I mean, for science fiction fans, it's just all this great sort of science fiction style imagery in the book. And you said that um, you, you're currently building one of these things in Tahiti, right? Could you talk about kind of the current state of this? So, um, we, the Seasteading Institute uh, secured a deal with French Polynesia uh, to build floating islands with some significant regulatory autonomy and administrative autonomy. And the whole idea of seasteading is to create some startup governance. And as people who want to get this started as quickly as possible, we had to confront the fact that the jump to the high seas with an oil rig or a cruise ship is too large uh, a risk to ask investors to make. What you want to do is create a minimal viable product that profits, and then you start scaling up fast. So we wanted to use a technology that already exists in shallow waters, uh, namely the floating pavilion in Rotterdam. And we wanted to use a legal technology that's already been demonstrated to create great prosperity in, on legal islands on land. And those are basically sea zones. So our idea was to combine these legal and engineering technologies on a floating island with a significant amount of legal autonomy, but all shallow waters are controlled by existing nations. So the idea was to go to coastal and island nations all over the world and say, we're going to build our own island offshore. We don't even need your land. We'll bring our own land. Uh, grant us some measure of autonomy to see if we can demonstrate that seasteads can be profitable and prosperous and great for your country. And if we fail, we absorb all the risk. We disassemble our seastead and go away. If we succeed, we can bring prosperity to your country, and then you'll be known as the country um, – scaling up the technology for adjustment to sea level change around the world. Well, French Polynesia is very forward looking. Polynesians are famous for traveling among islands and founding new societies. So they think of themselves as the original seasteaders. And the president um, invited us to come tour his country 
Uh, it's literally paradise. The, some of the calmest waters on the ocean. It's beautiful. There's all sorts of natural wave breakers, lagoons, atolls, every baby step to going up to the high seas. Uh, French Polynesia controls an area of ocean the size of Western Europe. So I think we're actually establishing a new kind of aquatic continent out there. So we're going to start very small with, uh, you know, sustainable floating islands in the protected lagoon of Tahiti uh, for about 250 people. We hope to have this available by 2020, the first seastead. And it's going to be, you know, right near a major economic center, a short ferry ride from shore. And if we set the first positive example, I think we can start scaling up seasteads really fast around the world and basically going to countries saying we can uh, help you provide some organic uh, water up adjustment to sea level change in exchange for some political autonomy. And we'll start these slow, strategic, incremental steps towards freedom on the high seas. Yeah, that was one of the things in the book I thought was really interesting was that in particular countries like French Polynesia and Japan and the Netherlands, they're a lot more receptive to this idea than elsewhere. So far, well, there's there's two ideas. One is the idea of we could start floating. Um, and Japan and the Netherlands and French Polynesia, you could see why they're susceptible to that idea because – these are countries, one of them faces tsunamis, the other one is, is basically slinking below the ocean and is constantly building dams. The other one, uh, French Polynesia is concerned they could lose a third of their islands by the end of this century. That's really devastating. People live on those islands. So when you come to them and propose, you could slowly transition into being floating islands. Um, they like that idea. The idea that's more challenging to people is we want to create startup countries. And we want to uh, start as minimal as possible and start demonstrating that the half of the Earth's surface that is unclaimed by existing countries could be a place for startup nanonations where we can demonstrate better voluntary ways of living together. Uh, and that's the thing you have to sell existing countries on. And that's something that Polynesians intuitively get because they already have this tradition of I don't like the situation on this island. I'm going to go take my family and move to that other island, <laughs> uh, which is the essence of seasteading. Well, right. We should maybe mention the Patry Friedman you mentioned earlier that you met at Burning Man is the grandson of Milton Friedman, the famous economist. Um, yes. So a lot of these ideas have kind of been developing generation after generation. Yes. And when I agreed to co-write a book with Patry, I had no idea that he was related to Milton Friedman. And that then that became such a compelling legacy for me because his grandfather is Milton Friedman, you know, the most famous economist of the 20th century. And it's not just for his economics work. It's for his ability to explain things to normal people. And he advocated the freedom to choose. And before his famous uh, TV show and book came out with his wife, Rose, his son, David Friedman, wrote uh, The Machinery of Freedom which where he proposes that if houses were on wheels and borders were open, people could just freely drive their house to competing governments and we'd have an economic solution to political problems. And then Patry Friedman uh, proposed what I think of as a machinery of freedom to choose, where he's kind of fulfilling this three-generation legacy, where, yes, it would be very interesting to empower people with a technology to allow them to choose among societies, and this would engage all sorts of effects that would allow us to make better societies and overthrow the problem of the monopoly of governments that emerges from land-based government. And if we floated and people could move about, we'd essentially have a machinery of freedom to choose. And I just found that to be uh, an irresistible uh, legacy to feature right up front in the book. So you're sort of imagining at some point each private property would kind of be its own detachable floating unit and your house and your yard or whatever would be on it. And you could just unplug that whenever you want. Yes. The idea is to vote with your house. Um, and so that has to be, that has to be developed. And uh, there are several people working on it from different angles because they realize they could see the power in this uh, solution to the governance problem. And part of the reason I'm so driven to make seasteading happen as quickly as possible 
is because I feel like this is one of the fundamental problems that humanity has to solve. We're rapidly decentralizing power in all our technologies. It's the 21st century, and we're, a lot of these technologies are advancing exponentially. And the one technology stuck in previous centuries is the nation-state governance model based on you know military control of land and we're not we're not moving forward if we don't find better solutions to that better forms of government better suited to the 21st century you say in the book that you have this sort of whole catalog of constitutions that people have sent you that they would want to see tried out you'd be surprised when you say to the world hey we're going to basically provide new jurisdictions for sale every type of innovator comes to you with their ideas and some of them have, you know, written constitutions for the uh, ultimate free society. Uh, it's all very interesting. It's, it's beyond my ken. Uh, I, my personal view is that in a true seasteading floating society, you wouldn't necessarily need a constitution. Uh, you would just need p to provide people the power to leave if they don't like it. And that's the key mechanism that matters. Just like I don't exactly read a constitution and agree on it before I get on a cruise ship, I do read and agree to a contract. And the contract is amenable to me, its temporary citizen, because I can leave and go to some other cruise line. So that means the providers of cruise ship governance hustle to make me happy. Um, and so I think that's the kind of situation we're going to have at sea. I mean, do any of those constitutions have any uh, ideas in them that make you just say like, oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that before. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, and not only that, they make uh, some of our volunteer legal uh, entrepreneurs uh, interested, and then they debate amongst themselves in technical ways that are <laughs> uh, outside my ken. But yes, um, we've had some constitutions uh, submitted, at least one of which we featured uh, on a blog, and it sparked some debate. It's all very interesting. But uh, it's kind of like we're saying we're going to provide the iPhones of the sea and people are already coming with, Oh, I haven't, I have the app you could have on that. And we're sort of saying, well, I imagine there'll be thousands of governance apps. And the point is to provide the technology for people to try them. And once we have hundreds and thousands of these governance apps on various seasteads, as long as people can choose among them voluntarily, create them voluntarily and quit them voluntarily, we think this will be a market dynamic that will allow the best solutions to emerge in a decentralized way. Yeah. And so you mentioned the first thing you're building is sort of just offshore in French Polynesia. And it sounds like the, the first stage is that there would be kind of a symbiotic relationship between the, the floating community and the land-based community. Could you talk about that, that symbiotic relationship? Well, Tahiti is a, is a famous tourist destination, and we're literally going to be, you know, a kilometer from shore inside a protected lagoon, a very short ferry ride away. So I think there'll be lots of traffic going back and forth. Um, and all islands prosper by trade with the world. So you could imagine we'd be a very small island, very close to shore with a very, you know, unique, uh, features. We're going to be a demonstration for environmentally sustainable and possibly restorative uh, floating societies in a lagoon. We're also going to have our special sea zone, which is going to be a unique uh, legal structure that takes the best practices of the 4,000 special economic zones around the world and instantiates them uh, on this island. And then we also plan to have uh, underwater uh, apartments and underwater restaurants with aquarium walls. We plan for sea life to attach to our floating islands so people can look through the glass and look at the fish looking at them. <laughs> It'll sort of be like people inside an aquarium. So I imagine kids taking class trips uh, to these islands to learn about blue technologies. We'll see with their own eyes how this works. So I imagine we'll have lots of ecotourism and lots of interaction with Polynesians. And we just came out in the media the other day uh, proclaiming that we plan to have 25% Polynesians on the island. So we're really committed to uh, an international community that pays homage to the original seasteaders who are the uh, Polynesian navigators. In fact, uh, Bart Rofen, the 
designer and manager of the floating pavilion in Rotterdam has designed these islands to sort of look like the Va'a, the uh, original Polynesian floating canoe. Hmm. I mean, it sounds like what happens, though, with a lot of these coastal communities is, is that you have agricultural runoff and it uh, increases the acidity of the ocean and creates these dead zones. And you could actually, you say, put these floating cities in those locations and, and sort of feed off that pollution and uh, clean it up in some sense. Yes, especially once these um, scale up and as uh, algae and uh, seaweed, which is basically a macroalgae, once algae farming uh, reaches a, a large enough farm-based uh, level. So we're probably not going to have much of that on our small floating island. But the people who are building the floating island are the original uh, proposers of this idea which is featured in the seasteading book, which is that uh, coastal cities and uh, floating cities could form a symbiotic relationship. So I, I wrote a whole book about uh, uh, dead zones caused by agricultural runoff that pour all these nutrients into the um, coastal waters, creating you know dead zones. Um, and uh, uh, my engineers at Blue 21 have been proposing for years that if you have algae-based economies just offshore, um, and if you have uh, seaweed-based food just offshore, they could absorb much of this uh, nutrient runoff, transform it back into food and fuel. So if you think of agriculture as polluting the ocean environment, aquaculture can actually help restore the local ocean environment. And we could uh, basically eat to restore the oceans if we have uh, food based on uh, seaweed in the vision of Blue 21. And uh, I recommend everybody check out their website, uh, Blue 21, they call themselves. And they have a plan to get a billion people on the water by 2050, which uh, they think would allow us to have kind of ecological balance between the oceans and the land. And it's a long-term vision but they are the people who will be building our first floating islands in French Polynesia by 2020. Yeah. And apparently there's some algae that tastes like bacon. <laughs> yes. Uh, somebody discovered that if you smoke uh, dulse, um, it tastes like bacon. And there's not even much you have to do with it. Uh, and some, you know, one of the guys that was featured on the Iron Chef serves this uh, in his restaurants. Um, and I haven't tasted it myself, but some people swear by it. And this is just one example of the foods that could emerge from sea crops. There are at least um, 8,000 species of seaweed, uh, many of which are edible, uh, almost all of which uh, have a much wider nutrient profile than soy or wheat or corn, which is what so much of our food is based on. And none of these uh, sea crops have undergone the artificial selection that has made uh, soy, wheat, and corn so tremendously productive. Uh, and as biotech advances, uh, people are proposing all sorts of um, um, environmentally restorative foods that could be developed at sea. Um, so I think the seaweed that tastes like bacon gives us the first glimpse of the kind of food we could have that's much healthier, much better for you, and much better for the environment in the very near future. As a matter of fact, um, our, one of our business advisors at the Seasteading Institute, John Guido, is a big agriculture businessman, and he got captivated by this vision, as it was expressed by Ricardo Radulovic in the book. And he and I were, are developing this idea to push forward a company called Restorative Foods based on uh, seaweed-based foods. And there's much more I could say about that. <laughs> well, yeah, and there's a lot more. I mean, there's so much stuff in the book we're not going to be able to get to that's just really interesting technology. Um, but you mentioned biotech, and um, you said Craig Venter is working on sort of um, genetically engineering some algae to, it's to produce biofuels and all sorts of cool things like that, right? Yes, he famously uh, sailed the seas uh, collecting uh, all sorts of algae and other organisms in the water and discovered all sorts of unique protein families that weren't there before. He 
he basically discovered, and he should get more credit for this, that the ocean is a soup of all sorts of new sorts of molecules that can be used to uh, create new kinds of uh, creatures. Um, so this is sort of like a, a vast raw data source um, that he sort of personally pioneered. Um, so the the imagination just runs wild with the sort of uh, uh, biotech applications that could emerge from this, uh, all these different kinds of organisms, all of which trade genes with each other. It's, it's really crazy. I, I speak about that briefly in the book, too. Yeah. And I mean, there are a lot of people you mentioned in the book who are very serious, well-known people and organizations who are working on some of these technologies. You mentioned, I mean, NASA and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Lockheed Martin. Sounds like people are really, lots of big organizations are, are getting into this now. Yeah. NASA watched, you know, my eight great moral imperatives of seasteading video series and, and someone at NASA Ames invited me to come speak to them about how algae could be environmentally restorative and how you could, the seasteading is basically a springboard to the stars because you could be out there for a long time and practice zero gravity environments uh, at a certain depth of water. Um, and, you know, NASA already wants to feed its astronauts with algae, uh, which is easily recycled as sort of like a very efficient plant. Um, why not practice at sea? And I went in there all nervous, like, man, I'm going to speak to real, you know, <laughs> astronaut engineers. Um, but they really got engaged and they started discussing it amongst themselves. And I was just supposed to speak for an hour, but I ended up staying there late at night and we had food and wine. And they all sort of brainstormed about how seasteading could, uh, you know, help them be a good way for them to practice for going to space. Yeah. Well, so talk about to how, so that's how you feed people in the middle of the ocean, but how do you power a city in the middle of the ocean? Because that's really interesting too. So we are, in 2020, we're going to power our floating islands with uh, wave uh, and uh, solar. Uh, so wave energy generation technologies. Uh, there are a lot of companies that want to push that forward. As you go further out to sea and you have more room, it gets more interesting. We already spoke about um, uh algae fuel, uh, you know, using the agricultural water off as a raw material to create fuel. There's people pushing forward that who are interested in seasteading. Once you're on the high seas, you can push forward a, one of my favorite technologies, which is ocean thermal energy conversion, or OTEC, which is a proven green technology that uses the, uh, basically the, the ocean as a solar panel. So at the surface of the tropical oceans where seasteading is starting, the water is very warm. Uh, the sun really warms it, especially near the equator. But deep down below, 100 meters down, it's very cold. Um, and if you have a 1,000-meter pipe going down, you have a huge temperature difference. Uh, and this can run a gigantic turbine that can produce a tremendous amount of electricity. Um, the technology was proven to work during the Carter administration. Uh, several island nations around the world are already pushing forward uh, uh, OTEC plants. The Bahamas, I, last I heard, is working on two. China is working on one. And it's a, it's a green technology that um, doesn't give off any pollution, that produces fresh water as a byproduct, and could produce enough energy not only to power an ocean city, but enough extra energy to uh, sell to the land nations of the world. Um, and it's it sounds like a futuristic technology, but it really isn't. Uh, it hasn't uh, come into play yet because it requires a lot of infrastructure to set up your floating OTEC plant on the on the deep ocean. And the uh, cost of fossil fuels uh, keeps remaining low, so it's always easier to use the existing infrastructure of fossil fuel exploration. But very rapidly, the cost of building permanent structures on the sea is getting cheaper and cheaper. So uh, we could be seeing OTEC plants very soon. Uh, and the, the deeper the water, the better. Uh, some of this is in international waters, so we are already seeing an economic incentive towards creating permanent uh, cities on the sea. And as P 
people like Bob Ballard, uh, discoverer of the Titanic, always point out that first you need your business out there. First, you need your farms out there, just like people who colonize the American West. And then your towns will follow. Then your civilizations will follow. And OTEC and other sorts of uh, fish cage technology and seaweed technology are the types of industries that would give people incentives to move out to sea and start their own countries. Right. So there's just obviously a lot of really interesting ideas here and a lot of really, really promising technologies. Um, could you just talk about what are some of the challenges, like one of the, some of the um, practical or engineering challenges that still have to be worked out to, to really make this happen? I don't think any challenges are left. Um, uh, I used to say that one challenge is just the business model for getting the first one going. I think we've got that, which is start very small in shallow waters with existing technology. I think the greatest challenge is misunderstanding. I feel the greatest threat to seasteading is political backlash. It's a very benign movement. It's a potentially environmentally restorative movement. It's a movement that's voluntary and requires the creators of seasteads to absorb all the risk. A floating island is no threat to anyone. I think it's tremendously positive. The engineering is rapidly coming into play. It's a global movement. Too many experts in too many fields are all working on it for it to fail now. And if you think about the confluence of 3D printing and nanotechnology and material science all coming together to allow us to colonize the other half of the earth with environmentally restorative technologies uh, that would essentially be startup nanonations, um, you see this is a completely benign movement. But there's such a misperception out there that it's about, you know, uh, evil, Dr. Evil billionaires going out there to, you know, experiment on children and creating evil islands of selfishness. And we're constantly battling against that perception. Um, and whenever, often when we come to countries to talk about this, the countries are afraid uh, to move forward because they're afraid of how it's perceived by people. Um, so I hope when we establish our first beautiful, prosperous, international floating island that looks like nothing else in the world in French Polynesia in the next three years, people will see what's possible. And now we'll have an example we can point to. And then the last remaining challenge, I think, will be gone, which is people's misunderstanding of what seasteads are all about. So are those misunderstandings, are those coming mainly just from people's common sense intuitions being wrong or from the media or from uh, video games or movies? Or like where, where, why do you think people have those, um, those sorts of ideas about seasteading? Uh, it's the media which is in charge of getting you to look at their advertisements. Um, and what gets people to look at advertisements is provoking them with bad news. So when good news happens, uh, it doesn't get reported because it doesn't get people to look at it. But when you promote bad news, it does get reported. Um, and part of my service at the Seasteading Institute was to – I have experience with speaking to the media. Not all media is like your media. <laughs> where you just have a conversation and then I'm criticized for what I actually say with most mainstream media or lamestream media, as I call it, uh, someone would go through this long conversation we have where I'm speaking from my heart as transparently as possible. And you would take out the section that makes me sound bad or makes it sound like there has to be conflict. And then you would feature that up front um, in your, uh, in your piece. And then that would be the come to be the statement I would answer to. And this has just happened over and over with seasteaders. You think that the journalist is on your side, but we get misrepresented often. So our only choice was to write this book and tell a bigger, better, more exciting story, which kind of overpowered the negative story. So now all the media we're getting is tremendously positive, but it was a lot of work to turn that around. Well, the book features this sort of Q&A section where you answer common objections. And I really thought that was very it was sort of interesting and it was um, short. And, you know, you kind of address each question very succinctly and clearly. And it did dispel, I think, a lot of my misperceptions in terms of, uh, you know, this is an easy way to avoid paying taxes or, um, you know, it's, it's all libertarians interested in this and things like that. Yes. And the struggle is always, well, let me refer you to my economist. Let me refer you to my lawyer, and the experts will spend, uh, you know, 10 minutes 
ex- explaining, talking through the, the fallacies or the misperceptions, but people's eyes glaze over. And what I try to do is what's the, I, I work for months to try to reduce these responses so they're clear for people. And uh, the experts will agree like, yes, that's a good way to, to put it. Um, it's not that easy, you know, if you're an American citizen to simply go out and found your own island and then you don't have to pay taxes. If you're an American citizen, the American government uh, claims you. So if you move to France and start your own business and you make more than six figures, you have to pay French taxes and you have to pay the U.S. taxes. So it's, it's not that simple. Um, and we're actually at the point now where most of the people involved in the floating city project don't self-identify as libertarian. Um, and then there's debates about what, what does the word libertarian mean? People don't agree on what it means. In my opinion, it simply means you're uh, giving people the freedom to have voluntary relationships and you're not going to use force in your life. And that's the essence of uh, what our seasteads are. I did want to mention there was this uh, thing you talked about, ephemeral, which I guess is it's in the Sacramento River, I think, which is a kind of so, uh, cons- constructed floating community. Um, and you say that there was a reality TV crew that wanted to film stuff there, um, but they decided there wasn't enough drama among the, among the people because anytime there was a disagreement, people would just kind of physically separate themselves and um, it kept things really fairly calm. Yes. Uh, what's astonishing to me is that Patry Friedman's idea, in my opinion, is no longer a hypothesis. It's actually been demonstrated to be true. People might argue with this, but soon after the Seasteading Institute was founded, uh, as a matter of fact, the year after it was founded, Patry came up with this idea of what's been called burning men on the water, which is we could have, you know, a short party on the Sacramento Delta where people bring their own land and we could start learning the tricks and trades of living on the water. And it's since grown without the Seasteading Institute's help totally organically among people that just love it. And the last time I went, I would introduce myself as Joe the Seasteader. And half the people I met said, Seasteading, what's that? And that's the essence of the success of the community. Uh, that it's just something that people think is cool because it works. It, they're not going there because they have a particular belief system. But anyway, about the third or fourth year of seasteading, there started to be some conflicts regarding noise and regarding lecture series and regarding people who wanted to bring children and regarding safety. And since nobody was in charge, no one agreed on how it should work. And remarkably, in my opinion, the, mecha- the social mechanics of seasteading emerged without anyone commanding it and no one ever even remarked on it until me, as far as I know. So after 2011, the year of conflict, by 2012, the ephemeral peeled off into three separate islands, not counting meditation platform, which was sort of a fourth island. And they each had different rules, different levels of safety, uh, different people that were there. And the year I was there, everybody on all the islands traveled amongst all the islands. It kind of became its own little miniature Venice with uh, motorboats, people volunteering to ferry people back and forth. And so you got to go to these different islands and try them out. Um, and by the next year after that, some of those islands reformed. Uh, some of the islands that, you know, got into conflicts. And every year, Ephemeral has grown and grown and grown. But the year after that, a brutality TV show got in touch with the Seasteading Institute, became very interested in uh, showing the conflicts that occur among people trying to build a new society that floats. Uh, They scouted out ephemeral. They became discouraged because everybody was getting along because you can take your house and float somewhere else. So they decided not to do ephemeral, and they basically imitated ephemeral and went back to the U.K., and tried to set up a TV show on several forts, military, old abandoned military forts on the water that are sort of set on land uh, where people are forced to live together. So basically, they remove the dynamics of seasteading, which is if you don't get along with people, you can simply take your house and go float elsewhere. So in my opinion, the social dynamics of seasteading have been demonstrated on a small scale at ephemeral. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, Robert Ballard, who you mentioned earlier, was talking about maybe doing uh, uh, his own reality show or working to do a reality show that would kind of publicize this idea. Is that has that um, idea gone anywhere? Uh, he proposes it every time he talks to us, <laughs> and he thinks the way you pay for this is to make it uh, a TV show. Yes. So what he wants to put out on the waters is something called the flip ship, which is sort of like what I describe with the deep ballast going well beneath the water. So it's basically a baseball bat shaped uh, vessel that can you can tow out to sea, and then you can put using ballast waters, you can flip it. So like four-fifths of it is below the water and one-fifth of it is above the water. It's been described as being as stable as a fence post in 50-foot waves. And Bob Ballard says, man, you could you could put a family on this thing. You could set up four of them and put a platform on it. And then you have your seastead. The question is, how do you pay for this? You pay for it the way I've paid for all of the ocean education I've brought to the world in my role as the Carl Sagan of the ocean which is you make it uh, uh, entertaining and you can put a family on this ship um, instead of you could show that you can, they could grow muscles on the side of the flip. You can have them struggling to get along and survive. He proposes that instead of like a dolphin pet, you could have a sea lion pet, which are easily trainable and as smart as dogs. I've actually worked with and written books about sea lions and I can confirm that's true. <laughs> so what he wants is a, TV show to pay for the first permanent floating city at sea. And so far, nobody has taken him up on his idea. And he's the guy with all the connections uh, in the entertainment world. So I think he's the guy that would have to find the funding. But he just says he doesn't have time because he's doing so many things. Um, he's, you know, the most famous oceanographer in history. But I, I would love to see something like that. But in the meantime, we're moving forward with the Floating Island Project. Yeah, no, that, I think yeah, I think that would be really fun. Um, and then another thing I wanted to bring up is this idea of floating hospitals, sort of floating off the coast of, um, you know, off the west coast or the east coast or whatever, where you could get much more inexpensive medical care. I was really stunned by this. Some of these figures you quote that you say that a uh, coronary bypass operation costs over a hundred thousand dollars in the U.S. and there's this guy in India who can do it for two thousand dollars or so and has a higher success rate. Yes, Devi Shetty, more, uh, Mother Teresa's former heart surgeon, one of the most uh, successful humanitarians in the modern age, in my opinion. Um, he's been called the Henry Ford of heart surgery. So he's an Indian physician who in India, for a heart bypass surgery, you can charge a few thousand dollars. In the United States or in Europe, it's more than $100,000. So all sorts of Americans and Europeans are willing to fly to India to get a heart uh, bypass surgery with survival rates that beat the survival rates uh, in the U.S. Uh, the fatality, the average fatality rate in the U.S. is actually higher than the average fatality rate in Devi Shetty's hospitals all over India. He's he's personally done hundreds of uh, bypass surgeries. And his hospital has done thousands. So imagine, you know, for the taking a flight, uh, staying in India for a while, paying for a heart bypass surgery, you can pay less than a tenth of what you'd pay in the U.S. and you have lower risk. This allows him to offer health care to uh, rural Indians for 25 cents a month, and in some cases, 10 cents a month. Uh, and so he gives most of the heart surgeons he personally performs are to poor Indians uh, who suffer some of the highest uh, heart disease in the world. So he also sends out mobile units, surgery units around the Indian countryside to offer heart surgery. So he's been hugely successful. It's brought in billions of dollars. He's saved tens of thousands of lives. So he's tried to bring this model around the world. Um, and he's basically set up an enormous uh, health city in the Cayman Islands, which is striking distance both to fairly poor countries and to the wealthy United States. So there's companies in the U.S. that are already willing to pay their employees to fly to the Cayman Islands and take a month-long vacation with a butler, with concierge service, and they'll pay them an extra few thousand dollars just for their troubles 
because all that put together is cheaper than just getting them a knee replacement operation uh, in the United States. So um, uh, one of the most interesting aquapreneurs is a guy who uses Debbie Shetty as an example of islands just off the coast of various countries where you can set up a unique jurisdiction and provide better, cheaper, faster healthcare. And um, sometime after I became enthralled with this idea and decided to feature Debbie Shetty in the book, he said in the Economic Times, and I'm paraphrasing the quote, that the best place to have an, a hospital is floating offshore an existing American city. Um, since he can't get that, he's starting in the Cayman Islands. So I'm saying this famous humanitarian heart surgeon is already a seasteader, and I wish he would get in touch with us. And I can confirm that the aquapreneurs most earnest uh, about getting their seastead, you know, 12 miles off the U.S., are um, medical researchers and physicians and people that think they can uh, provide better health care with a floating hospital, faster uh, medical research advancements with floating research centers, because basically healthcare is stuck in the 20th century and it's held back by regulations written in 1975. And we need uh, regulatory startups in the ocean. Yeah, well, if anyone listening to this knows Debbie Shetty, uh, have him get in touch with Joe. I think that'd be yeah, great. Please. Uh, and then I'm kind of, we're running a little short on time here. I'm just looking at the, the subtitle of the book here. We've got how floating nations will restore the environment, enrich the poor, cure the sick, and liberate humanity from politicians. We haven't really hit Enrich the poor. Could you just quickly talk about what is, uh, how's that going to happen with seasteading? Well, when I first uh, learned about seasteading, the first thing I started doing is watching all the speeches on YouTube of the famous board members who've served on the Seasteading Institute, each with a unique vision of how seasteading can change the world for the better. And one of the guys I found most compelling was Michael Strong, uh, who makes the uh, very compelling case that the biggest uh, program for eliminating poverty around the world has been uh, startup societies that allow uh, more choice for poor people and uh, economic freedom. Um, so he's the one who pointed me to the rapid rise of Hong Kong in comparison to China, in Singapore, in comparison to Malaysia. Um, and how this has been a, basically the special economic zone movement around the world, especially in China, has allowed uh, hundreds of millions of poor people to, to rocket themselves out of poverty and put their kids straight into the professional class. At least a half billion Chinese people have uh, escaped extreme poverty as they move to what are essentially legal islands within China. And this did much to persuade China to change its economic policies. Uh, another example I use is simply cruise ships. When I was on a cruise ship, I was quite amazed at the number of people from the developing world who are taking better jobs on these floating cities with different governance structures. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could create more and that all these different floating societies had to compete to attract these poor people as they gain better skills? So Michael proposed that if we could proliferate seasteads all over the ocean, you could imagine scaling up your seaweed farm uh, to the scales that people like Ricardo Radulovich and my engineers at Blue 21 imagine. Could you hire millions of people? Uh, you know, the, uh, agriculture hires millions of people. Would you and I take these jobs? I sure wouldn't, but I think if I was uh, – Living in a in sub-Saharan Africa in some of these places, I might want to take a job on a seastead. So Michael thinks that uh, startup societies are a great way to enrich the poor, and that uh, the more seasteads, the better, because the people most likely to take the jobs in these new areas are people from poor countries. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I mean, there's just so much interesting stuff in this book. I was telling my girlfriend as I was reading this, I said, if, if half the stuff in this book is pans out, this is one of the most important books I've ever read. I hope it all pans out. But as I said, even if it's just half of it, there's just so yes. much potential to this. And I had that same view. Even if, you know, a quarter of this works, it's, it, it's worth doing. And what's mind-blowing to me is we're starting a tiny one 
where all the people inspired by the vision are instantiating a, a, a miniature aspect of each of these principles. <laughs> uh, jobs for uh, places that need jobs in, in French Polynesia. Uh, environmentally restorative societies that could potentially help restore the corals. Um, uh, 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 floating societies built with recycled materials, algae fuel, uh, renewable energies that produce an excess of energy that could be sold back to the island. Everything that's in the book, almost everything, is being established in microcosm on the small floating island in French Polynesia. And if we succeed, I think we're going to see the vision elucidated in the book much quicker than I imagined when I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. Do you know, are, uh, are science fiction writers engaged with this, some of these ideas? Do you know of any, um, any good books or movies or anything that are uh, tackling the subject? Uh, my favorite uh, science fiction writer uh, hasn't written his first science fiction book yet. His name is Joe Quirk. <laughs> and I, I have I do have an ambition and a chapter outline for um, a Seastead-based novel set in 2037 that was inspired by a weekly brainstorm I had with uh, Max Borders, who's a famous uh, guy in our local community everybody should check out. So he and I sort of talked through uh, this idea for a science fiction novel uh, in the near future based on seasteads. And I think I have an ambition to write that if I ever get the time. I certainly don't have it now. But I started as a fiction writer. And I've, writ I've written science books, I've written fiction books, but I've never written a science fiction book. So maybe I could put all my interests together in the seasteading science fiction book. Yeah, I think that would be great. I mean, just reading this, I just it sparked so many ideas for science fiction stories. So, I mean, it's just and and so, you know, there's not a ton of stuff. I mean, um uh in um Neil Stevenson's uh, Snow Crash, there's sort of a floating city and there's a fantasy novel by China Mieville that's all about a floating city, but there's so many uh, ideas in this book that I uh, I've never come across before in science fiction. So, I think it's yeah, it's definitely really rich um, you know, rich uh, ground for for that kind of story. I welcome the science fiction community to start inspiring people's imaginations with uh, novels about floating societies at sea. All right, great. And so, uh, I'm just—are you a science fiction fan yourself? Do you have any? Uh, you mentioned sort of Robert Heinlein and Star Trek were the two kind of science fiction things I noticed in the book. Uh, I read mostly nonfiction, and I don't even, as someone who is an avid reader and writer of books, uh, once this. Uh, company, Blue Frontiers, uh, took over my life. Everything I read has to do with researching something to do with seasteading. Um, so I, it's been a long time since I've read some fiction. Um, so I, I got my start reading literary fiction. Uh, so yes, I really used to read uh, Neil Stevenson, and then I read David Foster Wallace, and I used to read Faulkner, and used to read guys like that. Um, but I hope to I hope to start writing science fiction sometime in the near future. Yeah, well, well maybe after you've uh, restored the environment, enriched the poor, cured the sick, and liberated humanity from politicians, you'll have more time to to listen to podcasts like this one. You can get some uh, good reading recommendations. <laughs> Thanks, man. We're gonna we're gonna do this as a vast seasteading community. <laughs> All right, great. So we've been speaking with Joe Quirk, and this new book again. It's called Seasteading. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me and, and check out Blue Frontiers if you want to join our community of volunteers. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Joe Quirk for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who signed up recently to support us on Patreon, including James Doyle, Marcos, Jerry Canavan, Felix Haas, Wesley Fox, Marty Cooper, and Ren H. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Jonathan Vazda, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via check, and to the following listeners who just made one-time contributions via PayPal, Rory Carroll, Martin Kilbinger, Juan San Miguel, and Mark Weaver. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Casper for sponsoring today's show. Remember that if you do decide to order a mattress, you should visit casper.com galaxy and use the promo code galaxy. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.
The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.